You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Chapter uh, 4, um, we're going to uh, pretty, pretty much finish up this chapter today in Mark chapter 4, and we are in a series called The Suffering Servant. And, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of, by this point, puzzled at least by this little thing that will happen where Jesus will, like, talk to demons. Have you ever seen this one before where he'll, like, talk to demon and tell them to, like, shut up, basically, and be quiet and put them into pigs and send them into waves and all that kind of thing? And, um, and you start to ask yourself, you know, the question, like, if the suffering servant is bringing salvation to the nations, then why is he, like, telling people to be quiet about it? Like, what, why is it, what is it about Jesus that when crowds come, he talks with more confusing statements? It's Easter. Now is the time to be funny. You know, like not say like, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And um, I love Timothy. Timothy was the preacher. Make sure to give him a high five. Uh, he did a great job. He does it all, guys. He does it all. Announcements, everything. Did a great job. The parables of the mustard seed tell us that the kingdom is not coming through a celebrity. The kingdom comes through a small seed. And you wouldn't even pay attention to it if you didn't have eyes to see it. And it's less even about cognitively understanding something. It's more about trusting it. And those who use it get richer, right? And those who get poorer are poorer. And the seed just grows and grows and grows until a small seed becomes shade for the nations. Like, what a fantastic riddle. What a powerful thing. What is he saying there is that it's, the kingdom is not like YouTube empire that just takes over by media force. It's not like a celebrity that just woos you with charisma. It's not like politics. It's not like carrots and sticks and economics. It's a small secret that gets into the heart of a few servants that explodes and takes it over. Like, get ready because the kingdom's not coming through your iPhone. It's coming through servants. So why is he telling demons to shut up? It's because if all he wanted was people to chant his name, he could have had a demon do that. If all that he wanted was just a crowd to just like make him feel good about himself, he just let that demon do what he's doing. And so sometimes it's like if you can't beat him, join him. Sometimes the enemy knows he's, his time's up, so he gets done with the world. He just joins the church and turns churches into celebrities, right, and not servants, and gathers crowds instead of disciples. But what the parable has to mean is that the kingdom of all things is not coming through celebrities. It's coming through servants, people that are, that are willing to be small, to not be in the spotlight, but to be in the secret. Like, even if it's two mites and nobody sees it, it might move heaven and earth, is what I think he's saying about the kingdom of heaven. And so, the kingdom of heaven, if it's not coming, you know, by celebrities but servants, it doesn't just come through sermons, but it comes through storms. So, I apologize, I, you know, if you public speak for 52 weeks in a year, you only have a few stories. I only have a few stories. If you heard the story, just pretend like you didn't hear it before. Um, and so, I'm 21. Um, the notebook had just come out. It's 2004. That's a bit of a reference of my age and the time period that I'm speaking about. And um, uh, raised support, and I went to Campus Crusades for Christ, um, summer, uh, summer project experience where you're doing um, 300 kids in this old, probably not even fire-safe house down um, near Atlantic City, Ocean City, New Jersey, and we're doing, like, initiative evangelism, and we're doing praise and worship, like, three hours a night, every single night. It's just like this incubation, like firehouse for faith. It was really marking time, awesome experience. 
Um, and basically, about July, all the 40-year-olds leave, so all the 20-year-olds just run the whole thing. And it's amazing what 20-year-olds can do uh, when you don't lower the bar on them. And so also amazing the dumb things that they do. So, um, so um, if you're a woman in the room and you ever wondered, like, what happens at these, like, men's advances? You ever notice how we don't call it men's retreats? Because we're just like, we're going to advance something. We're going to just do something. You know, we're not going to sit around. And so here's what it is, is um, we didn't, so you guys all got together and got a charcuterie board and got a theme and all the colors match. That's, I've seen these because I'm a pastor, so I've seen some of it. All of that is not there at the men's retreat. At the men's retreat, it's like, is there a tablecloth? Did you remember the tablecloth? Like, there's nothing going on. And as women are getting, this is why we don't really want to do the men's retreat because there's a lot of missing is that the women and consecutively when they get together, they actually, I don't know if you've seen this, they get together and they actually get smarter together. I don't know if you know this, this is they, they encourage each other, they get better together. Men get dumber. So like, instead of chasing the best idea, we'll just chase, like, is that the worst idea? Let's, let's do that even more, okay? So he had gotten up there and gave this really riling speech about Braveheart and there's a few verses in there, I think, and uh, there's some John Eldridge quotes and uh, we had to go in advance. It wasn't time to retreat. We're coming in advance. We don't know where we're going to go, but it's not going to go backwards. So it ends up, we had the good intention, wrong direction. We end up um, at the beach, um, only boxer shorts allowed at this event, apparently. Uh, we go down there to the beach, and there's blue face paint, I know. And there, um, a kid, one of the kids had brought a bag of potatoes from the Piggly Wiggly, a bag of potatoes and a wiffle ball bat. And so the Don Eldridge Conference just turns into hitting uh, uh, potatoes into the ocean with a wiffle ball bat. This has made a lot of sense to us at this point, okay? Well, that's not dumb enough. So the next step was we're going to go into the ocean and start, start swimming. And this is what I mean about getting dumber. It's kind of like if you find me by myself, I'm not going to get into that ocean. But if that guy says that he's going to get into the ocean and I'm a loser for not getting the ocean, then somehow the, sh- the tide turns the wrong direction. That's all I can explain about the male psyche, but that's kind of what goes on. And so I find myself in the dark ocean, okay? And, and, and I just, right, can we go there for a second? There is a difference from, like, playing um, that ball with the yellow thing and the, and the trampoline, whatever that thing is, spike ball, hanging out on the beach with your little Clemson cooler, and going into the dark ocean. Do you know what I'm saying? The dark ocean is from the dark place. I don't know what goes on between, you know, 12 o'clock, but it's awful. But I'm in there because it's Braveheart time, and I'm in there. And it's like, about five minutes later, I recognize, you ever get in the, in the ocean, how quick your towel moves down the shore. My towel was here, but why is my towel there now? Like, why is my towel over there? And I'm realizing that, oh, that sign that suggests that you know, should watch out for riptides is like not just for people that can't swim. Riptides are serious. I don't know if you know this, but the ocean is undefeated. Like, the ocean has gone up against pretty big boats and didn't lose. And so me, you know, watching the notebook is not going to help. So I'm drowning. That's the nature of the story. And it just, this panic of like, I've never felt, like 21-year-old men think they live forever. And that kid that died in the newspaper a year before, I'm like literally thinking of it like, there's no difference between him and me. And, um, And there's a desperation and a weakness that I probably don't think about or maybe haven't thought about, you know, maybe in different months and years of my life. That I'm really one, not because of my swimming skills, or even knowing that I should swim sideways and riptides. That's another advice for your sermon if you don't hear, hear it from me for the rest of the sermon. But swim sideways, not towards the, the shore. I barely grasp on and swim back. You know that big pier, that big wooden thing that goes up and down into the ground, and it's got all the barnacles and the thing? 
I'm like, waves are like smashing my face <laughs> against this thing. And by the grace of God, I'm getting saved by this thing. And I cry out in a way that I never have before to all those guys back on the shore. What does it take for a 21-year-old man to actually cry for help? It takes a lot. I'll tell you that. <laughs> and it's not like help me with my chemistry homework or just help me get along. Like, help me, I'm dying. Help me if you don't help me, I'm going to die. Like I a, like a, like a, felt like a, like a little child. And I'm screaming out to this guy, John. And how many of you guys are thankful waves will push away the people that don't need to be around you in your life and they'll draw in the people that do need to be around you in your life? And I'm like, John! I mean, I'm just like, I'm letting him know this is not like a joke. John comes out and he, I mean, I'll forever remember, he didn't actually get to me, but he was like getting ping-ponged between all of these like big posts, you know, as I'm getting like ripped apart. And I'm able to, by the grace of God, use Melian's word to like monkey bar from one post to the other and kind of like shrivel up for a, like on, on, on the shore like, like Tom Hanks and Castaway. And, and it's like, it is, if you've ever been in some sort of a near-death experience or traumatic event, like it is both... A, um, it is both a terrifying and sacred moment to be brought to the end of yourself physically, to feel yourself thin, to make yourself weak. Like, not just because of the worship song, but like sincerely, in all sobriety, I'm helpless. And, and it's just something about that on a hospital bed, in front of a sick spouse, whatever it may be. When you're thrust up against that wave you didn't choose. And, and, and your soul, like without the song, is screaming from the inside out like, I am, not as, I am not as strong as I think that I am. It is such a good place to be thrust every, every once in a while, to be put up against the waves like that, so that your soul, without the worship song, can say, I think I need more help than I thought that I did. I, I, I don't, I actually don't think what I'm singing on Sunday sometimes, I don't think I have as much faith as I think that I do. Like I theologically explain a few categories, but does my soul trust in the Lord when nothing makes sense and everything is on the line? Like there's crisis moments that are terrifying, but also divine that thrust us into our weakness and, and, and force us to reckon with ultimately what I would think is basically a world that's bigger than me. So I actually have to and require a God that's bigger than my world. If I live in a world where everybody thinks and talks and walks like me, and everybody is at my maneuvering grasp that I can move around with my people opinions and my, and my money and my time. If my world is, big en- is, is, is only big enough for me to control, I don't need a God that's bigger than my world. If I have a world that I can explain the cause and effect analysis, I don't need a God to lead me through the confusion. If I have a world that I can explain and control everything, I don't need a God to rescue me from the world that I'm creating in. And so, so, in other words, the experience of waves that we're getting into today is, 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 a, is basically an equation of realizing that my world is bigger than I thought, so I need a God bigger than I know. It's being married to a spouse. Tim Keller says that when you're married to a spouse, you're actually married to seven different people. Sometimes I feel like you can be married to seven different people in the same day, but that's a whole other, depends on who you marry. But at least, okay, at every seven-year cycle, you actually said I do to a version of somebody that you never met. And they're just like a, just like a metamorphosis. They're just going to disappear and poof, appear somewhere else and be completely different. And you're still married to them. You're married to seven of them. So the person that you're, you're sleeping next to is not the person you married. And somehow this is, this is exposing you to a world you never thought existed. And you might be tempted to think that God has left you alone. Actually, he might be closer than you thought. 
in the wave that's bigger than you, you actually, have to, you actually have to yield yourself to the possibility of a God bigger than your world. Then you can understand and control. You stood your ground in your family and drew the line. And as much as we preached and committed and talked about showing up and choosing and loyalty, you stood your ground and the people in your life decided to go to the other side. That the people you thought would always be with you are now against you. And there's ice in the air and there's poison in the environment. What is it like, right, when your little village gets fractured and everything that you knew, all the relationships that you didn't even realize you relied on are now gone. Those people are not the same people anymore. What is it like when you recognize that you go to a new, a new bubble and you realize that all of your life you've been listening to echoes of yourself and you've always been the majority and your jokes were always funny and your smarts were always appreciated and your skills were always recognized and now you couldn't be, you couldn't be less noticed and more unseen and more marginalized. What is it like to be brought into a world that's bigger than you where you require a God that's bigger than your world? And so this is the, this is the gift like the kingdom of God is not cute parables. It's built in storms. And, it, and it's required not just to listen to the sermon, but to walk in the storm. Because if we don't face storms that are more than we can handle, bigger than we are, we inevitably, always, because this is we're creature, creatures of habit, will live lives smaller than we're made for. These are the three words that should, they need to wreck us. Like we need to hear them through their ears that the disciples are going to hear from the lips of Jesus. Before you turn this into a Stephen Furtick sermon that is just about, just, just about just the overcoming side of this, because there is an overcoming side of the sermon, before that sermon, there's a Metallica song that is just your, the plane is shaking and you don't know what to do. It's a gut-wrenching thing to hear Jesus say, we're going to the other side. The three words that Jesus opens up this little story is, we're going to the other side, which basically means for these people is, is one, leaving the crowd behind. There, there are people on the shore when these disciples leave that now are rooting against them because they want to see their desire for control and safety validated by your failure. So going out on these waves causes your family to root against you because your success emphasizes their fear. So, so Jesus is not on accident calling them away from the shore. In and through waves, not away from waves, not around waves, not in a helicopter. In and through the exact waves that they're afraid of, these waves in the Sea of Galilee, the drop-off from the mountains, the cool breeze, everything that happens that causes her. Like today, you could go to lunch by the Sea of Galilee, and if you went the wrong day, the wave would just swallow up your car. Like these are legit fishermen. These are not people that don't know how to swim, okay? So in and through these waves, and not just to get to the happily ever after, they're leaving Jewish territory for Gentile territory. In other words, they're not only leaving family, but they're coming in to be sent on mission to love enemies. What is the leadership of Jesus? In case we've misunderstood it or forgotten this, Jesus is not leading us around waves. If you're a Christian, your faith and the spirit inside of you is not guiding you away from waves. It's guiding you into waves, into more problems, into more confusion, into a world bigger than us. Like um, one of my mentors was talking about the other day that Jesus sent his spirit into the church not to get people in, not to get the city into the church, but the church into the city. Is, is to get out into the waves, over our head to love, love our enemies. What does it mean other than, than, than simply the gut-wrenching feeling of the other side of like, when you see that person at the grocery store, that one Christian that did that one thing at that one church and it's really awkward and you don't know how to talk to them, Jesus is not leading you away from that. He's leading you towards it. 
Like whatever your thing is, he's not leading us away from ways but towards ways. It's, it's you would rather, as Jerry Seinfeld said, die than, than go on Sunday and do public speaking, right? Isn't that what Jerry Seinfeld says? It's to stand up in front of a bunch of strangers that probably will judge you and speak what God did to you regardless of what they say. It's, it's to walk towards those ways. For some of us, it's actually, it's actually swerving the uh, serotonin addiction that we have of constant discipleship that's constant excitement. Sometimes waves is being boring. Sometimes waves is rooting down and choosing when it gets ugly again and going towards it with devotion. Waves can look different in different seasons, but mark it, Jesus does not lead us away from waves. Intentionally through waves to, to make us, to build, not to break us, to make us, to find out this really important thing. This is, we found this out. That it's like, the spirit inside of us is actually made for those moments. When we get into those moments, we figure out that, that something about faith is not meant to live in the bubble, that it creates a sense of spiritual nausea, that I'm listening to another sermon that has nothing to do with my life, that I'm not active and participating. Like there's something about faith that actually dies on the shore, that's made for waves and makes us, puts us at our best when we don't have the answers, that we're actually, that we're actually discovering uh, the, the, the pureness of the work of Jesus when we're in those scenarios, in the waves when we can't touch the bottom. So Mark chapter 4, there it is in verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. That night when the dark ocean was going, I mean, not the cornhole time, the dark ocean. (laughs) That evening, he said to his disciples, well, let's go over to the other side. Leave mom and dad behind and go where people usually don't go. Leaving the crowd behind, he took them along just as, he was, as they were in the boat, and there were other boats with them. So I want to ask you to do kind of like a, a, a first impressions survey of what you think of when you think of the word discipleship. Okay? Discipleship. If you've ever heard, go and make disciples or, you know, Mike Breen, like the discipleship movement, you know, life on life and, and follow somebody ahead of you, somebody beside you. Somebody, like what do you, what do you think of when you think of discipleship? I will be transparent with you in my inventory. My understanding at a first glance level of discipleship is this picture. Somewhere, there it is. Right? I think of discipleship as something I do in the morning where the Bible is offering me clarity and confusion, offering me wisdom, in which case I leave that place, hopefully, hopefully, full enough to overflow. This is my understanding of, of discipleship, right? My understanding, if you just say off the bat, cultural expectations and, and environment that you were grow, grown up, I think of discipleship as early in the morning, wisdom and clarity over confusion where I'm full to overflow. Jesus in our text this morning thinks of discipleship like this. Jesus thinks of discipleship as, as Bible study, but also, but also boat storms, He's not subtracting from the definition, but he's certainly adding to it, right? In the sense that when Jesus thinks of discipleship, he doesn't just think of something we do in the morning, but also something that happens to us at the dark night of the soul. Something that happens to us when we're out of energy. Something that happens to us at the end of the race. It's not just the thing that is like full and fill my cup at the Starbucks with, with the steam on my face. Like it's, it's something when the waves are crashing down. And it's not just something about wisdom and clarity, but it's something about confusion and waviness that I don't understand, that it's both and. The discipleship is morning and evening. It's wisdom and waves. 
And ultimately, discipleship is, is about being full to overflow, but discipleship is also about being so squeezed and drowned and empty that you have nothing left. The definition of that we have to have a range of expectation, or, or if you, I mean, if you don't know the use of something, you always abuse it. If you don't have a category for what he's doing, you might think that something is the devil. It's just discipleship. Discipleship in Jesus is both about being filled up so you have so much to overflow, but also take heart in this, that if you are tired and weary and drained and lacking and needing, you might actually not be far from Jesus, but close to him, because discipleship is also about being squeezed until there's nothing left. And so, so the reason why Jesus is leading us across, and this is, I guess, kind of day one in life, right? Why does Jesus have to lead us into storms, and why doesn't he make it easier? And it's, and it's not because he's a daredevil and because he wants to torture us. He knows that fear is a bully, and storms and waves are the last place that we go. He did, he's not pro-storms. He's just, he's just pro-faith. And he, he, he's too good of a leader to lower the bar. He wants to show us that the faith inside of us is actually better when it's in waves. That, that our life is actually bigger than we understand it to be. And we can't need a God that's bigger than waves if we don't get into a world that's bigger than our life, right? And so, so it's like that bully. I used to have, I dated this one girl. It's, it's a long story. Anyway, I dated this one girl and the kid was mad at me, right? And he was smaller than me, but why was I so scared? I don't know. And so I would chart my, I would chart my my path from math to English to take three extra minutes so I didn't have to see him. You know what I'm talking about? And I mean, to the whole year, like it just changed who my friends were. It just like, because he knows that the pathways of our mind are gonna get rutted into whatever I have to do, but not face that. He's not saying, I, I want to freak you out. He's just saying, I want you to walk a straight path no matter what's in front of you. And everything that we need, we find out after really 30, 40 years, everything we need, we're suffocating and starving. You know why we don't have it? It's because we're afraid to go get it. And if we don't have leaders, they're not going to lead us into the storm because everything we need is on the other side of our fear. So the community that we desperately need, if we're lacking in community, is probably just on the other side of something that's very small that seems very big. Just to share your story, it might be terrifying. Not for somebody else, but for you, it's terrifying. But that warmth and embrace of belonging community is just on the other side of the thing that you're terrified of. Trust this, that Jesus is a leader to lead you to the other side of that. The sacrifice that it takes, that sacrifice and the fear really of not being recognized, of giving something that somebody would toss aside as worthless, that's the cost of discipleship for us. The vulnerability that it would take to be completely known and completely loved, there is no such thing as intimacy without the possibility of rejection. The character that we need is on the other side of a simple iPhone toggle called 6 a.m. 45 minutes could change your children's destiny. If only he, we would let him lead us to the other side. To the other side of Bible before 4 in the morning. To the other side of food to quench my feelings. To the other side of praying for a sick person in public. To the other side of sharing the gospel boldly with a coworker. To the other side of public speaking. It's just on the other side that he's not lowering it, he's leading us through it because he knows that's what our faith is made for. So verse 37, a furious squall came and the waves broke over the boat. Uh, the boat. Just real quickly up there on the screen, just to get a, a chart of the darker and darker slide. Mark takes us from Mark chapter four to five to six. If you're following Jesus, like Amelian said, 
Like, you might be surprised because the path keeps, like, why is following Jesus making, he's the light of the world. Why is my path getting darker as I follow? And take heart that, like, on a spiritual level and physical are two separate things. The physical world, as Emilian says, the target that gets put on a Christian back gets dark on purpose because it, if you're not facing us against the enemy, every now and again, you're probably going the wrong direction. So Mark, Mark 4, a furious squall. Mark 5, you know what a legion? A legion means, a, a legion's not 100. A legion is a thousand demons. Jesus, just after this, with these disciples, faces off a thousand demons into this person and, 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 and preaches to them and saves them. Uh, the physicians that we're working on for 12 years, the dead girl that he's going to raise, like this isn't just like somebody that's shaken in church. Like this is like facing off against the, the, the deep darkness of this world. Jesus is facing off. Furious squall comes up, waves crashing over the boat. Like there is a difference, right? When like some guy on some news program that you don't like indicts you and, and, and speaks. What happens when the voice, the microphone of the enemy gets into your spouse's lips? What happens if the, the voice of the enemy gets into your preacher's lips? What happens when the water doesn't just stay outside the boat like it should? It actually gets in the boat. What happens if it gets in the boat? This is what he's doing. Furious squall comes up. The waves break over the boat so that it's nearly swamped. And Jesus was in the stern, sleeping, asleep. The disciples woke him up. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? So let's take a little, a thorough caution here and consider what I like to call storm theology. Okay, I'm just thinking it's in Wayne Groom's book, right? But we have to have this understanding of, of what's going on in the storm because here's what's important about this. Does Jesus know that the storm is, is he a meteorologist at least to know that the, that the water he's about to get into is going to get choppy? Does he know ahead of time, right? Jesus knows the storm is there before he gets there. He has the ability to calm the storm at a whisper, but decides somehow between the calling and the commanding, he's going to sleep through the storm. Like, is Jesus dumb? Did he just have, you know, uh, 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 what do you call those uh, uh, air sickness pills that I take sometimes uh, and just pass out, you know? In, in coach, like, is, 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 he, is he thoughtless and careless? Has he lost his mindfulness to sleep through the storm? Like, why does storm exist? Well, here, at this, I just want to say this at this point, because it's just so crystal clear to me. I don't know how you missed this. Jesus does not create cancer to teach Christians lessons. There's like a James Bond villain that creates disaster and then solves it so he can make a profit. And whatever capricious ugliness that goes on in James' villain, that can't be our God. Jesus does not create storms. The storms of this life, the world, the flesh, and the devil, which he just preached about in the parables, didn't he created by him. In other words, he, he told the wave at the end of the thing to shut up. He's not going to tell himself to shut up. He's speaking to the enemy. He doesn't create storms, right, but he does use them. And we have to have a, 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 a balance and attention of the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God within that perspective, right? But, but Jesus, we have to ask this question, then if he calls it, he commands it, then why does he sleep through it? And I think it has to do with, because, because there's a, it's, it's almost harder. Like for him, it'd be easy just to calm the storm. It's just simple, sheer physics and mathematics. The one over the waves can command the waves and tell them to stop. But what he's doing is ever more delicate to come into the personal sovereignty and the personal choice of a human being is to get into the heart. What he's speaking to in this passage is not the storms around them, but the storm that's gotten inside of them. Not to speak to the fear and the waves that are happening in their circumstance, but the water that people have allowed to leak into their boat into themselves. And so I don't know if you've ever seen this before. It's a, it's a powerful thing. Have you ever seen a person that is poor, but they refuse to live in poverty? I had like a, a teacher growing up, and she made it all work. She, she, she squeezed every nickel and every dime, and she took her kids, and she was not going to allow 
the wealth of her wallet to define the wealth of her character. Like she's, she's like deciding that status is not going to determine her position. And that's like a loud thing to the God of money for rich people and poor people. Like it's like, whoa, you're breaking the rules. Like to live without money but not live in poverty is a strong thing. Have you ever met somebody and they're the barista just like you and there's like a leader on the org chart but they're not the real leader? Have you ever met somebody without the occupational position but they have influence more than the one that does? And you know, you start to recognize that, the, that, the, that there is waves. There is strong currents that happen around human beings on any given day, but they're not as strong as the faith and fear that goes inside of a person. That faith and fear live between the ears. That faith and fear live within the heart. That, that, that human beings, you know, we're, we're designed, right, to respond, but not to react to the storms around us because that's the place where worship can be the loudest. That's the place where you can sing a song that you can't sing in heaven about the size of your God. And so this is what I think is so critical, critical about understanding the loud Jesus not just speak to the disciples, to speak to us, right? Because he addresses the main storm that lives inside each one of us. There it is in verse 38. He says, they say to him, they cry out almost for us on our behalf, teacher, listen to what it says, don't you care if we drown? This is the reality. Humans aren't afraid of death. They're afraid of dying alone. That's what we're afraid of. We're, humans are not so much afraid of sacrifice and suffering. They're, they're afraid of suffering and not being seen in it. That's where the real pain lives. Teacher, don't you not, are you going to call him? Do you even care? And so, so this is what's so important about, I think even in this generation up there on the screen, it's so important to, to not allow the circumstance to grab their microphone and tell you who God is. Rather, God would tell you who your circumstance is. Suffering does not mean abandonment. As a matter of fact, suffering might mean intimacy with Jesus. Pain, this is what C.S. Lewis says, Pain is highly underrated and highly misunderstood, especially, I think, in this generation. Pain insists upon being attended to. It just, it, it won't allow you to be fake. Put somebody in pain, and, and, and all of that how do I look goes away real quick. All of that how, how do I look stronger than I am, and how do I get more credit than I deserve, it just doesn't matter anymore. Such a beautiful thing to get washed over by pain. Pain insists it doesn't let you manipulate through religion who you are and what you're doing. Pain insists on being attended to. It demands a microphone. It's so loud. And God whispers to us. He speaks often in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciousness. You can hear God in his voice. But listen, the volume's different. He shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to a deaf and, and dying world that... that, that that pain is, is, is this place where, where God is always speaking, but pain is the thing that opens our, house, our, our, our heart to hear him. Um, I was talking to a mentor, and, and he, was, he was just talking about, about this kind of topic, about pain, and, and we have to have healthy categories of pain. I like that he talked about there's horrific pain, there's human pain, there's holy pain. We're in a moment right now, I think, that has been really needed, and I think it's profound and astute, and I think that God's doing something in it, of, of the church getting healthy by identifying pain. Like, like, if you grew up in a Christian family with eight kids and the only way you knew to get love and acceptance was to do the dance to get the hug, then something that happens to you when you're eight can still be happening to you when you're 48. That there's pain that can happen from our childhood that deeply shapes, though it happened for a moment and wasn't the intended message that was meant to be sent, get interpreted in a certain way that will shape our life far beyond the age of eight, right? But, but the second necessary essential uh, 
approach here needs to be not just to identify pain appropriately, right, but to interpret pain accurately. Because there's people that have been, like, physically abused in the back of youth buses by their youth pastor. And that needs to be respected separate from there are just people that, like, didn't get to sing in the worship team because they don't sing good. And there needs to be healthy categories between, like, being ripped apart by the devil who comes to kill, steal, and destroy, and just being next to humans. Like, when Jesus takes off his outer garment and uses it as a towel and stoops down to wash the 24 feet of his 12 disciples, we know that two of those feet have to be Judas's feet. It's painful to be close to people. It's just painful. And some of that pain is, is, is horrible. And some of that pain is just being around human beings. And some of that pain is actually about holiness. Some of the pain we're experiencing is just our ego dying. It's not the worst thing for pain to come to us, for our ego to die. And so there has to be a healthy differentiation between identifying pain and, and differentiating, interpreting what pain, what pain is doing. What pain is doing, pain is a megaphone, is what, what C.S. Lewis says. How many times, this is what Jesus, remember when he was preaching his parables? He, he preaches his parables, and he actually uses the ocean as a microphone. I mean, isn't that balling? Like, Jesus stood up here, and you're like, I can't hear him. Oh, wait, yes, I can. He knows everything. He preached his parables across, like, 30 yards of waves because the waves actually was a megaphone. This is what he's saying, that pain might actually be the best vehicle for you to hear God's voice in this moment right now. That, that um, how many times as a pastor, like, isn't this the prayer? God, would you move it from my head to my heart? Isn't that what we're all trying to do? Hey, I, I get a sense that I'm missing something when I see people moved by the heart of God. Like, I get it cognitively, but I don't, it's not moving in my heart. I feel dry. I feel alone. Maybe, the, maybe the, the, the discipleship invitation is not, hey, go to church, sing louder on Sunday. What if it's, what is the emotion you're feeling right now when you're not in church? And bring that before him. Let your, the Psalms can speak to us about this, that every emotion has a psalm. What if your vehicle for that prayer, head to heart, is actually not taking that pleasure thing and praying about it, it's taking that pain thing and praying about it? What if you found yourself in a personal revival if only we would, we would not neglect or abdicate the, the, the proper availability of our pain to actually microfo- microphone God's voice, to be loud in our life, to put us in a place where we were weaker than we thought, need more help than we thought, and actually open up to what God is speaking to us all the time. I think it's just a profound statement from C.S. Lewis. So verse 39, he gets up and he rebukes the wind. And he says to the wave, be quiet. Like this is theology, this is Kevin McAllister theology, right? This is when Kevin McAllister comes down to the, uh, to the little furnace, the thing that has been terrifying and keeping out of the basement his whole eight years. And just says, that's enough. That's basically what he says, shut up. This is the Greek, right? Be quiet, be still. This is what Jesus is doing. He, he knew it all along. He knew the storm was coming, called him anyways. He slept through it, and then he wakes up and he decides, when it's time to sleep, it's time to speak. And right now, it was time to sleep a minute ago. Now I'm standing up to speak, and this is what he's saying. I'm speaking to it. I'm being quiet. And notice what he's saying. He's not saying, hang on there, little buddy. Hang on, we're going to make it. Oh, me too, it's really hard. Like, hang on. He's just like, there's a time when Jesus stands up, and he's like, that's enough. You had, you, you know, you've talked long enough. And you're not, you're not a rival to me. You understand, like, the devil is not God's equal opposite. God is not thumb-wrestling the devil over your life. He, he has complete and unadulterated, unequivocal, undefeated, undefeated victory over your life in Christ. And there's no battle lost or, or squirmish lost or, or any wave that he allows or demon that he allows to exist outside of a pig for a second. It's because he allows it, not because he, he's arm-twisted to do it. He has victory. He's not under waves. 
He's not beside waves. He's over every wave. And he's making a decision of when he's going to sleep, okay, because he can sleep when he wants to sleep, and he's when he's going to speak, because he's going to speak when he's going to speak. But when he tells that wave to be quiet, there is no competition. There's no rivalry. I don't live under waves. I don't live beside waves. I live over waves, right? Because between the lines, what he's really saying, what he's really saying beneath theologically is not just shut up. What he's saying is he's saying it's finished. He's saying he, we don't see ahead of, he couldn't see ahead of time. Sometimes it's hard for us to look backwards into human history to see the cross, right? But he's, he's gasping on the cross, facing his greatest wave, and made the greatest wave of, of all human history. And, and this is the vocabulary here. He's letting the waves of your sin and mine drown him on the cross. He's letting it drown him. He's letting it exhaust all of, its ang- uh, 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 all of the, the wrath of God and the fallen world and the flesh and all the things that were, were coming to us. He let it hit his shoulders first. And it drowned him. But in that death and in his baptism, unlike ours, he grabbed up the keys of the authority that Adam gave over in the garden. He grabbed those keys back. And now, as he holds those keys, he has authority not under or beside, but over every wave, that any wave that comes to him, he can decide as soon as he wakes up from a nap, whenever he feels like it, just tell it to stop. This is the reality. God is not wasting any of these waves in our life. He's timing them. He's toying with them. He's getting something out of them that he's going to use because he uses them like little pawns and then cast them into pigs when they're done. He's not a rival to any of this stuff. It's not like he doesn't know any of this stuff. This suffering has not come to us for our evil, but for our good. I love the way that T.F. Tenney t- talks about it. In the sermon I heard, he used the fire analogy, not the wave analogy, but the fire when he, took, when he died on the cross and claimed victory, not just substitution, but victory over all of our enemies, Colossians says he made a spectacle of demons. He made a spectacle of their foolery. They thought that killing Jesus was the end of goodness. Rather, they, they underestimated his resurrection power and strength. Resurrected up out of those waves and shifted the authority lines. The fire that used to be authorized for destruction is now turned by grace in Jesus' hands. It is no longer authorized to defeat you. It's authorized now to build you. It's authorized, authorized to make you. It's authorized to, to actually be a microphone in God's lips to speak into your heart that, that your God could be bigger than the ways that you have. And so he's speaking this, this to us. And so this is why he sleeps in the waves. Verse 40 is, is, is when you get pressed on all sides, the first, if you're, for example, if you're a married couple, if your kid starts acting up, the first thing at, before you pray for your kid is to pray for your marriage. Because, because what's going to happen is Everybody's happy when everybody has everything. Everybody's happy when the sermon's clear. It's when you get into the waves that it hits. That's really where it happens, right? And, and so what's happening in these moments, it's not, it's not creating that ugliness that's coming out of you. It's actually squeezing what's already there out of you. And so he allows the sleeping to happen for the waves to squeeze us to get the real fear out of us that we might actually fear the one that we should fear in the first place, which is Jesus. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified I mean, isn't that the greatest gift? If you fear Jesus, you can fear nothing. If you fear everything, you can't fear Jesus. But you fear Jesus, you have no other fears. Singular in your fears. They were terrified, and they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And so I'll close with this little story from from C.S. Lewis. You ever read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Closes up in one of the latter books, Prince Caspian. No, it's it's not the the last one, obviously, but one of the middle books. Prince Caspian, The Return of Narnia. Lucy, after a long window of, of, of not um, encountering Aslan as a character who kind of is like omnipresent here sometimes and then kind of distant in other seasons, Aslan is in one of those, um, uh, one of those uh, tangible um, uh, encounters with Lucy. And so anyways, this is the dialogue. It says, 
Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobs Lucy, at last. The great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell, half sitting and half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her. She gazed up in his large face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. Like, that's the thing is, is right now, it, it just feels like chaos. Like, it, it just, it, it's, it's breaking out of the mainframe of all of your theological paradigms and emotional boundaries and limits that you thought you didn't have. Whatever it is, like, it's, that's the nature. What else can a human being do when, when they are just thrust into, without their permission, a paradigm-shifting moment? Where, where everything they thought was up was down, everything down. That's like the nature of it. But, but, but Lucy in this, I think, helps us give language to, I think, some of our experience, not just with the ways, but with the faith towards Jesus, is that Jesus will actually start to become bigger. Like, that's the complaint, if there's comment cards in church. It's like, you're talking about something that isn't relevant to out there. It just, it's... The, the Jesus you're preaching is too small. It's, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't fit those problems. It doesn't get that dark. You know, you solve the problem within the 30-minute sitcom window of just solving neat little problems with neat little pithy sayings. And, and so there's the gift to those that would, that would cling on to Jesus in the middle of that storm, not away from it, but through it, that not only does the wave get bigger, but Jesus gets bigger and realer. It stops becoming about that dream where you had the genes a certain way and you're playing the guitar and you're you know, perfect family. Like it just, it gets ripped out of that, of that humanistic construct of the dream that you had for the reality he's bringing. And you get invited into the real Jesus. As Lenny says, she says, you're bigger. That's because you're older, he says. Not because you are, I'm not. But every year you've grown. Every year you're only now getting introduced to the scope and the size of everything that I want to do with your life, that, that you're only now understanding that the faith that has been put in you so long ago was ready for this moment. Like, I planned it for this moment. I called you into it. It's not by a mistake. And I was sleeping for a season, but there will be a season when all that's not good will be done and all that is well um, will be made permanent. Whereas, uh, what is um, the, the Lord of the Rings when Gandalf says, um, every... every Every, every, every tear will be, un, will, be un, will be dried or something like that. I need to remember my Lord of the Rings quotes before I start them. So here's my question. This is what I want to bring to you. This is what I want to bring to you. Um, I think that Jesus teaches us two postures uh, when it is that we're in the storms like you're in right now, because I know that you're in one. Um, and, and really, there's only two things that he does. The one thing that he doesn't do is submit to him. Hang on, little buddy. If you just do X, Y, and Z, then, you know... You'll take care of it because it's on you, man. And once you pass this test, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what will get you a amen in church is preaching an if sermon. If you just turn and you just do this and you do that because people love, they, people love if sermons because it makes them feel like they're in control. Oh, you told me an if. I'll go out and do it and then I can be the owner of my destiny. We don't live ifs. We live becauses. We live from what's happened. So here's the permission what if you did what the enemy doesn't think you're going to do, and instead of just getting all riled up, you just sleep through it? There's people, like, in your little teacher lobby with the coffee, and if they don't have a fight with you, they're going to have a fight with somebody else. They just love to fight. 
They just love to get torn up in the drama, and they want you to get unraveled in it. And I'm just saying, like, you know, you, you have free will. You do what you want to do. But there is a permission. You could just sleep through that. I'm just not going to. I'm too tired to really. You're right. I'm wrong. Okay. <laughs> you know, you don't have to get riled up about every, every little thing that the devil speaks at you, right? But there does come a time. Like when it comes up into your family's life, right? When it comes up into your head, when it starts telling you things about who God is, there's a time when it's time to stop sleeping and it's time to stand and, and say, you can be quiet now. Do you remember that time when, um, oh yeah, Jesus stepped on your head and decapitated you and now you're just a slithering snake that can't really do to anything to anybody? And, and anybody that God has clutched in his grasp, he's not lost one, he's loved them till the end. Do you remember that time when you got defeated? Oh, that's right, that's today, right? You can speak to your waves. You can speak to that person knowing it's destiny, knowing the authority of shifted that's happened with Jesus and just say, that's enough, we're done now. You can, you, can, you, can, you, can, you can stop speaking. You can stand and preach the gospel, not only to yourself and neighbors, but also to the enemy, to remind them of who he is and where he's going. And that's completely sanctioned. And so one of those two things, never submitting, sleeping or speaking, we can, we can, we, he will take us on through the other side and realize that everything that he ever needed and everything we ever wanted is just on the other side of that, of that fear. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.